Good afternoon. I'm Judge Hunter Murphy. Um, to my right, Judge Fred Gore. Um, and to my left, Judge Julie Flood. Um, we are your panel here today for the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I want to thank uh, Roderick McFarland for doing everything for us and our clerk, Gene Soar, for being here as well. And we will, um, unless there's anything else, we will be with the appellant. And uh, first case today, I believe, is State versus Johnson 22-658 is our file number. And before we get started, just a reminder to um, make sure you're using pseudonyms or initials that were used in the briefing. Thank you. Good afternoon. May it please the court. My name is Heidi Reiner. I'm here from the Office of the Appellate Defender representing Mr. Johnson. Um, I'd ask to reserve seven minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, ma'am. Mr. Johnson is entitled to a new trial for two reasons. First, the trial court erred by removing juror Reeves. Voir dire was reopened and the parties questioned Juror Reeves about her relationship with one of the state's expert witnesses. After questioning, defense counsel and the state's attorney agreed that there was no cause basis to strike the juror. But still, defense counsel asked the juror, quote, be struck. Under binding appellate court precedent and NCGS 15A 1214G3, the parties have an absolute right to exercise any remaining peremptories once voir dire has been reopened. The trial court's refusal to replace juror Reeves with the alternate was reversible error under binding precedent. Let me ask real quick, you know, I, I'm not one for really requiring magic words, but when I'm looking at this transcript, looking at 188 to 189, um, defense counsel asked for the juror to be struck, then the court asked what basis. And the basis given here, um, to me, seems like a continuation of that four-cause challenge. Um, and then later, it's about asking her to be disqualified, which is what we usually use for, for cause, not you don't necessarily disqualify a juror um, just because um, you don't want them when you're using appropriate challenge. That's not the language you would use. So what what here dispels that thought that it was still the for challenge? Um, yes. Or challenge for cause, sorry. Yes. I, I, I think you have to look at um, that whole section together, transcript pages 188 to 189. And I think when we look at that all in context, it makes clear that it's a peremptory challenge. And, I'll, and I'll, if, if I may, I'll go through that in, uh, in detail. Um, Although counsel did not use the word peremptory, the context of the discussion um, makes it clear. On the third day of trial following, um, sorry, I'll just go ahead and skip to where you ask about. Uh, yes, ma'am, and, and I didn't mean to get you too far no, off that's okay. from, from where you're going, but I know, you know time is sometimes limited, so. Right, you know, I'll, I'll just back up, if, if I may, from on what basis to where um, the first, um, first the court asked the state. Um, what they think about the, the reopened voir dire. And the state says, I don't think there's any basis to strike her for a cause. Then the court gives the defense attorney a chance to respond. And he says, quote, I think it was an honest mistake on her part. So he, in, in context, he is agreeing with the state's attorney there that there is no for cause basis to strike this juror. If she did not make the misrepresentation willfully or purposefully or maliciously in some way, there's no for cause basis there. So I think by backing up, it makes sense that this is a peremptory challenge. 
Um, defense counsel goes on to say that had she been asked that question in the initial voir dire, my calculus would have been different, meaning I would have struck her at that point. Um, and, and the court does go on, as you suggest, to say what does that mean? Um, and he says again that I'd ask that she be struck here. And at that point, he doesn't offer a for-cause basis for it. He asks that she be struck um, without, without cause or without reason, which is the definition of a peremptory challenge, that, that a juror can be struck without reason. Um, the court does go on to say on what basis, um, and he reiterates um, that she made that incorrect response during voir dire, but he does also say that it was unbeknownst to her. So in my mind, again, he's there acknowledging that this juror did not make this statement maliciously. She didn't make this statement in a way that purposefully is trying to get on the jury when she would other, otherwise be disqualified to do so. He's acknowledging, yes, there's no for cause basis to do that here. Um, and then the, the prosecutor jumps in and says, I don't see any reason why we need to ask her to step down. Um, and as, as Your Honor noted, the court says, are you moving to have her disqualified? And, and I do agree that that's an unusual choice of word. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I, I think, though, that when we talk about jurors being qualified, it's not necessarily for cause challenges or peremptory challenges. It's really under NCGS, I believe it's 9-3. Um, a juror is qualified because they're 18 years old, because they live in this state, because they reside in this county, because they haven't been on a grand jury in the last two years. That's the only, that's the only place in the relevant statutes where I have found the word qualify. Of course, it doesn't say disqualified, but it does say that's what, how jurors qualify. Yes, Your Honor. Okay, so get me beyond the initial intro of you where it says before the jury is impaneled. Because we're clearly past the jury being impaneled. So how do we get to the enactment of the three after the jury has been impaneled? Yes, absolutely. Um, our Supreme Court and um, I believe in some instances this court have held that that statute applies even after the jury has been impaneled. Um, I think State versus Holden is probably the, the binding case from the North Carolina Supreme Court. I think in that case it was actually, the reopening of voir dire was actually after all of the evidence had been submitted. Um, so appellate precedent says that this statute does apply anytime voir dire is reopened and that's regardless of whether the jur jury has been impaneled or not. Um, Review still um, in Holden, um, and that um, it's a statutory mandate that the, the court has to follow here. And when they they don't do so, it's reversible error. So statutory mandate. So if we're saying it's statutory mandate, the statute says one thing, we're interpreting it another thing. So are we at a statutory mandate? Well, I, I do think that. I, I agree that's true. Um, so how are we at a statutory mandate? Because if we are, it says before impanel. The statute does say that, um, although the case law says that this statute in particular applies under these circumstances. So I think it still is a statutory mandate um, if you go through that precedent, Your Honor. 
Um, and I, I just want to recognize, I guess, that this situation, reopening voir dire during a trial, is, is somewhat unusual. And I think part of the confusion in this language and probably the reasons that the questions sometimes don't seem to match up or the attorneys are sort of talking past each other is because of this unusual situation. Um, I will say that the, the School of Government's bench book um, for Superior Court judges does address how this should happen. Um, it says that the trial judge may question the juror or permit the parties to do so, but once the, once the judge reopens the examination of a juror, each party has that absolute right to exercise any remaining peremptory challenges. Um, and I think going back to Judge Murphy's question, if you, if you sort of step back and look at the substance of defense counsel's statements here, it's that he wanted to remove this juror from the jury and doesn't give a reason except when prompted to do so um, by the trial court. And in, in that instance, he again disavows the for-cause basis for the challenge and continues to say that he would like this juror removed. Um, do you have page references for the, the Superior Court judge's bench book on that in your notes? Um, if not, it's okay. It, obviously, it, it's not binding on this court, but obviously often is a, a decent resource as a secondary yes, um, um, source to gather more information from. Yes, Your Honor. I can pull that. I think it was in my MAA. It, um, it is section, jury selection section 11.1. Um, I think it's on pages 9 to 10 of the bench book, but I, I can provide the, the court with that information. Thank you. If, if needed. Um, and, and going back to sort of looking at the substance of defense counsel's um, statement as a whole and not requiring the use of magic words, I would also point this court to State versus Hammonds. Um, there, this court has found um, found error under similar circumstances. There, the attorney used the words, um, asked that the juror be excluded and removed in their request, but never used the word peremptory, um, like here. And, and um, this court construed that as an attempt to exercise a peremptory strike and concluded that the trial court committed reversible error. Um, this, I think, is also important to think about how this voir dire, the reopening voir dire, is not really like um, the initial voir dire at a trial. Um, the parties agreed to reopen the voir dire here um, for Reeves, knowing that depending on the answer she gave, they may have to excuse her for cause and, and use the alternate. So when the state um, makes arguments in the brief, like maybe defense counsel was trying to hold on to a peremptory for a strategic reason, I just don't think that that applies here because we're on day three of a four-day trial They've already agreed to reopen voir dire, knowing that that alternate may need to be used. Defense counsel then realizes after voir dire happens that there is no basis to strike the juror for a cause, but asks nonetheless that she be struck. So he's using, he's trying to use that peremptory. Of course, the better practice would have been to say peremptory. He didn't do it, but I think given the context as a whole, it's clear that that's what he's doing. He also didn't say um, a for cause challenge. Um, so I think really looking at the context of the, the argument as a whole is important. Um, this, the state sort of makes an argument also that there's a requirement to sort of make a for cause challenge before a peremptory challenge. I think again, going back to the language in the transcript when he says, I agree, she, this was an honest mistake. She said this unbeknownst to her. All the parties are in agreement that there's no cause basis here. So it wouldn't make any sense to make a, a, a cause challenge when the parties are in in agreement there. Um, the opinions in Rogers, Womble, Hammonds, and Thomas cited in the briefs do not suggest that any for cause challenge is required before exercising a peremptory strike. Um, and, 
another argument that the state makes is that after this discussion, then, then counsel should have gone ahead and, and made a peremptory strike. But of course, defense counsel thought he was making a peremptory strike. That's what he was trying to do. So it doesn't make sense that he would then go on to do it again after the court's ruling. Um, once the parties agreed that there was no basis to excuse this juror for cause and defense counsel asked that she be struck, the court was obligated to do that. The decision whether to reopen voir dire in the first instance is a discretionary decision, but whether to allow the parties to use their peremptories after voir dire is opened is not. So counsel, on, on that issue, the worst point is, is where I think the, as Judge Murphy asked, is, is it not The, the without peremptory being used, and the trial judge having her say on the record that she should go forward, there's no further issues. How how do we get to where the trial judge, you know, felt that there was more than just being challenged as a cause? I, I think because after that whole discussion on page trans, transcript page 189, it it continues and the court says, "Is there any further argument?" Counsel says, "No." And then the court again asked, are you, are you asking to have her disqualified? And he says, yes. Um, and I think that again, looking at that all in context, not in isolation, and I know I, I sound like a broken record here, but, but saying all of that, I mean, we're in this position because he didn't use the word peremptory, right? He also didn't use the word for cause. But I think once he agrees that unbeknownst to her and the fact that um, my calculus at the initial voir dire would have been different had I known this information. I'm not saying that he doesn't say the court would have struck her at the initial voir dire. He says my calculus would have been different during the initial voir dire, and that's at transcript page 188, had I known about this personal relationship. That's sort of a standard peremptory challenge basis um, that, that the tr trial lawyers use all the time, and he's saying it again here. I mean, I guess the overarching point is that we he doesn't use the word peremptory. That would have been the better practice, but we also don't require attorneys to have a perfect practice um, to secure defendants' rights. Um, this is, like I said, an unusual situation, probably not something that trial counsel comes up against all the time, and, and, and that's why we're here, but I, <clears throat> excuse me, when the parties are both saying over and over that yes, there's no reason she has to sit down, but he's still asking that she be removed, still after that whole conversation, asking that she be removed from the jury. I think the fair understanding of that is that it was a request to remove her from the jury and use that remaining peremptory challenge. Um, if there are no further questions about the juror issue, um, I will move on to the, the second issue about vouching testimony. Um, on cross-examination, the state asked a single question of the CPS investigator, quote, did you substantiate abuse in this case? The expert replied, we unsubstantiated regarding the mother and we substantiated for Lucinda as far as the abuse by the grandfather. The state doesn't contest that this is exactly the kind of impermissible vouching testimony that our courts have long forbidden, but instead says that it should have come in because defense counsel opened the door to this testimony. A party opens the door to testimony, otherwise inadmissible testimony, when it's required to correct or rebut a specific fact or transaction. Um, 
here, I don't think these two comments are tied in that way um, that they are in the cases, the state sites and that I've cited in the briefs. I think looking at State versus Jones is instructive. Um, that was a murder case on cross. Um, defense counsel elicited testimony that there were no eyewitnesses who were able to identify the defendant as the killer. Um, on redirect, the prosecutor elicited hearsay testimony that the defendant had admitted to a killing. On appeal, the state ordered that, um, argued that defense counsel had opened the door to this hearsay. But our Supreme Court held that there was no particular fact or transaction connecting the hearsay to the testimony on cross. And specifically, the Supreme Court stated that this statement did not explain or rebut the earlier testimony and its admission was error. Let, let me just ask a question. I, I guess I, I've got a lot of concern with this, this open the door um, and how it gets applied. But here, the questions asked that the state has on page 22 of their brief, we're looking at, I think, transcript 340. What's the relevancy of defendant asking these questions if it's not to try to talk about the investigation, if it's not to talk about this? Why would it be relevant? Have you ever, have you ever investigated in that seven years allegations that turned to be unfounded? Why is that question even relevant if it's not about this investigation and how it all interplays? Right. I, I think that this is a this is an expert witness. They're trying to test her credibility at this point. And I think uh, again, I'm going to refer to the the broader context of this witness's testimony because on the page before, as the as the state points out, defense counsel is asking this witness questions about whether um, Lucinda's prior statements were consistent, essentially, um, and and frankly, um, whether that was a wise lawyering decision is is a great question, but um, the answers that he got from that witness were not helpful to the defense. So for example, on page 339, um, the witness, when, when defense counsel is asking if these statements were inconsistent, defense, or the witness says things like, not as far as she didn't say the same thing, no, but she gave more information. She gave different, but more information, more details about what, what might have happened. And then later on that same page, even goes as far as to talk about how this happens with children all the time. Well, I mean, with a child, especially that young, sometimes we have details that sometimes they share with us in the beginning that they may not share again, or we may interview them, you know, and we may get more information or detail. So this witness is not giving testimony that's particularly helpful to the defense. So my best guess is that at that point he pivoted and asked about her process. Um, he's asking about what's your experience doing these investigations, have you ever found them to be unfounded? And then asked, how do you do that? So, um, because here she says, we do it based on the interviews that we have, what their recommendations are, et cetera. And then he goes on to ask, did you do that in this case? Um, so I, I think it's, he's not getting the answers that he wants about these factual conclusions about consistencies, but inconsistencies, but then does go ahead and try to sort of attack her process. Because at that point she's become an, somewhat of an unhelpful witness. He tries to quickly clear it up as best he can. Here's the things that happened and didn't happen in this case, and then stops. Um, so I guess that, that circles me all, all the way back. Why isn't that then relevant to correct or rebut the amount of investigation she's doing that when we get to the question about substantiation? And especially because here it's not, if I'm recalling correctly, it's not just you know, did you substantiate it? And then goes through about what that actually means. So it's not just in a vacuum, 
you know, giving veracity. It talks about how that veracity was, comes about in terms of the process. Um, so um, there, there were a lot of questions in there. I'm going to break that apart. But um, I think to the first point is that I do think that it opened the door to questions about her process and about the investigation. I don't think it opened the door to the ultimate question that's left to the jury about whether this investigation produced a certain result in the agency's p opinion and that it was specific to the defendant. So um, the agency not only said that it had subs substantiated the abuse, but that Mr. Johnson had done it. Um, that is a question that is solely left for the jury. Um, I think if we think about this in a different context um, that happens pretty regularly, the state presents off, um, testimony from a police officer who describes his investigation. Here's what I did, here's what I looked at, those sorts of things. On cross-examination, defense counsel asks, did you do this other thing? Did you, um, how did you go about investigating this, what you talked about on direct? That doesn't open the door on redirect for the, co the police officer to get up there and say, I investigated it this way. Yes, I've found people, I've, I've investigated people in the past who are not guilty, but in this case, this guy did this crime and it was him. I think that's where we get if we follow the state's argument to its logical conclusion. Um, Um, if they're, if you're talking about an arrest, I think you can, um, and I mean, I think that that is very different. The DSS or CPS investigation ends with losing custody or a criminal trial. Well, let's not get to what the final outcome would be because losing custody is the final outcome. Right. Substantiation or unsubstantiation is formally an opinion, just like an officer would be required if they've done an investigation. So is that or is that not analogous to a CPS worker forming an opinion Um, to the extent that's a, a critique of my, my example, I think it's not a perfect analogy. Um, and, and point, that's very, I'm taking your example. Yes, of course. So, but, I, but I'm saying they're forming an opinion. Right. And so obviously they're not forming guilt or not, they're forming an opinion. So I'm asking from the forming the opinion standpoint, is that not I guess in this case, it, it, it is, in my opinion, the expert witness is testifying about guilt. They're saying there was abuse here and the defendant did it. Um, and I guess the other thing I would point to is just a long line of cases saying that this type of vouching testimony is not permissible. And that's especially true in a case like this, where it's essentially the complaining witness's word against the defendant's word. And now you have an expert witness who does this as a living, getting up there and saying, yes, I believe the complaining witness is credible. And you've got, you're coming right up on your seven minutes and we've asked a lot of questions, so we'll, we'll give you some more time right at, at the end. But one thing I want you to think about, and you, you can answer it now or, or later, is um, going over from transcript 341 to 342, 
is the redirect and it gets more explanation of the substantiation and about what this means about sitting at a table um, and talking about this and it's not this bare bones substantiation that the state got out during um, uh, its cross but why why doesn't this cure this part bottom 341 to top 342 cure at least overcoming plain error maybe if we're dealing with regular prejudice and maybe that wouldn't overcome it but you're dealing with plain error in the heightened standard I'd, I'd like to your thoughts on on, on how that does or, or doesn't um, get us out of that that heightened prejudice requirement well, I guess the, my first answer would be that defense counsel is sort of in a catch-22 if, if this affects the prejudice, right? He's got, on cross-examination, this, this really damning statement has come out, and he is entitled then on redirect to go ahead and address that without waiving any error, albeit no objection here. But um, I, I don't think it goes to the prejudice because it's still the state's expert or the defense counsel's expert, which makes it even worse in my opinion, getting up there and saying, yes, I substantiated abuse against the defendant in this case. Um, and if there are no further questions at this time, I'll, I'll reserve. Thank, Thank you. you. Be with the state. Good afternoon, your honors, and may it please the court. My name is Sarah Tackett, and I'm here on behalf of the North Carolina Department of Justice representing the state in this matter. Uh, there are three issues briefed in the uh, party's briefs uh, before the court today. Council only addressed two of those issues, so um, the state is going to follow lead and rest on its brief regarding the third issue, uh, unless the court has specific questions about that. Starting with the first issue, the state's position is simple. Because defense counsel did not request to use his remaining peremptory challenge, and defendant concedes that there was no for-cause basis to strike the juror, the trial court did not err. Um, as your honors have discussed and counsel discussed, the statute uh, indicates when it's discovered a jury's made an incorrect statement after voir dire has closed. Well, actually the statute references before the jury's been impaneled, but I think case law does clarify that it applies even after that. The court in its discretion can reopen voir dire, uh, and if so, and there's a basis to remove, must strike the juror. If not, defense counsel argues and the state agrees, either party then has the absolute right to use a remaining peremptory challenge. The state also doesn't dispute that the defendant had a one remaining peremptory challenge. I think the record's clear to that effect. However, the state, state does dispute that based on the transcript, it's clear that defense counsel was exercising that remaining challenge. And that's for several reasons, some of which your honors have already mentioned. First, um, the language that's used. Yes, counsel references uh, asking the, the juror be struck, and perhaps that could refer to either type of challenge. However, when the court comes back later in the testimony and asks, or uses the word disqualified, are you asking to have this juror disqualified? That's significant in that it typically, when, when using that word, it, it likely indicates that the, the court understood that the defense counsel was making a motion to strike for cause and not using uh, a peremptory challenge. And I say that um, because there aren't any qualifications to a party using a peremptory challenge, but there are qualifications or disqualifications, if you will, uh, that would support removing a juror for cause. In particularly, uh, a juror is required to be fair and impartial. 
when sitting on a, uh, a jury. And if the circumstance, circumstances indicate that that's not possible, certainly there's reason to disqualify. Similarly, right before this, the, juror, the court asks that question or uses that language, the district attorney is further uh, continuing her argument that there's no basis to strike this juror for cause given that she said she could be fair and impartial. So contrary to, to opposing counsel's assertions, the record isn't clear at all that the state agreed there was no for-cause challenge um, in this case. And even more so than that, the transcript doesn't indicate that defense counsel agreed there was no for-cause challenge. Um, at no point does he say or admit in the transcript, I, I recognize there's no for-cause basis here. It, it just doesn't happen. Instead, he says, it was an honest mistake. But that's very different from agreeing that there was no force cause basis. Certainly an incorrect statement, um, notwithstanding it being an honest mistake, still could give way to reasonable reason to, to challenge that juror if the circumstances of the incorrect statement, in this case the, the, quaint, the acquaintance. Yes, Your Honor. Um, certainly, counsel's interpretation might be correct, but it's equally possible that, that saying my calculus would have been different uh, could mean that during voir dire, if the, the juror had disclosed this relationship, he would have made a four-cause basis to strike at that point. It doesn't necessarily mean that he was agreeing she could be fair and impartial. Certainly, uh, a juror may say that and, and may genuinely believe it, but the circumstances of a relationship might say otherwise and lead a, a counsel to, to, to disagree and still feel compelled to make a four-cause motion to dis, uh, strike. Significantly, that's exactly what happened in the uh, State v. Thomas case under nearly identical facts where the juror discloses during trial that there's this prior acquaintanceship from 20 years ago, high school, says she can be fair and impartial, and despite that, counsel comes back and makes a four-cause motion to strike that juror. When that's denied, he did exercise the peremptory challenge, and of course, that was where the error came in. Does that answer the question? Okay. Um, I just want to address the, um, finally, with respect to the language using, striking for a basis. I would like to strike her on the basis that there was an incorrect statement. Counsel would not have needed to give a basis for challenging the juror, the juror if he were intending to use a peremptory challenge. In fact, it's long been held that one of the most important rights secured to a defendant is the ability to strike a juror without cause. Um, and in this case, if, if, that, if he had intended to use a peremptory challenge, he wouldn't have needed to give a basis for that. And even more so, after uh, the DA comes back and, and argues again, that there's no four-cause basis, he would have clarified at that point, it doesn't matter whether there is or not, whether she can be impartial. I'm using a peremptory challenge. I believe I've answered or addressed at least all that I wanted to on that point. Um, if there are any, no other questions on that issue, I'm going to move on to issue two. Just 
Turning to the second issue, the testimony of Investigator Plowman, just briefly I wanted to highlight some of the important facts of the case relevant to this issue. Uh, this was a consolidated trial for two child victims, Lucinda and Tommy, pseudonyms of course, and the jury convicted defendant uh, on one count of taking indecent liberties with a minor as to Lucinda and two counts as to Tommy, as well as one count of sex offense against a child as to Tommy, one count of second degree forcible sex offense against Tommy as well. So of those five convictions, only one of them related to Lucinda. Likewise, the testimony at issue here with respect to Investigator Plowman related specifically to Lucinda as well. She did not indicate that CPS had substantiated abuse of Tommy. That's significant, I want to clarify, uh, it's significant because should this court agree with defendant that plain error occurred or that the defendant received ineffective assistance of counsel, the trial and, and therefore is entitled to a new trial, the state would contend that that should only be with respect to the convictions regarding Lucinda. Wasn't her veracity, however, um, part of everything going on here? Wouldn't her veracity impact potentially the, um, the charges regarding the young, young man? The child, Lucinda's yeah. veracity? It, didn't she, and I just can't remember all of her testimony at this point, but didn't she testify as to his actions and therefore if she's more believable, then his story is more believable? You're asking, did she testify about Tommy's actions? Correct, or where he was, not, anything related to? Not really, Your Honor. There's some confusion given the prior statements that were made and, and versus the testimony that, that's given. But in a nutshell, all she says is one, at one point Tommy was in the house, either in the living room or in a different room. Um, and I think she references that defendant touched him, but then later on cross clarifies that she meant touched him with a fly swatter. Other than that, Lucinda didn't get into any testimony with respect to Tommy or what Tommy says happened to him. Um, generally, in a sex abuse case, a witness may not improperly vouch for the credibility of a victim child by testifying that they believe the child or that the child's telling the truth, or in this case, that they were uh, sexually abused absent physical evidence. Case, state doesn't dispute that, that law and standing case law, um, and the state also recognizes even absent an objection that, that our courts have typically found this type of testimony to be improper. However, the state contends based on the transcript that the defendant opened the door to this testimony for several reasons. First, Plowman's testimony on cross should be considered in context with the testimony immediately preceding it. On direct examination, defense counsel asked Plowman a number of times whether Lucinda's prior statements to her were consistent with her statements in a sub subsequent forensic interview. Throughout Plowman's direct, counsel repeatedly asked, I think I counted seven times, if the information provided was different, inconsistent, not the same as what she'd told somebody else, clearly attempting to highlight and discredit the victim. The state doesn't dispute that that's a valid defense strategy, certainly that, that, that's the goal of the defense counsel in a, trial, a criminal trial. And if those were the only questions asked, we wouldn't be here today. Certainly, or furthermore, the state isn't contending that defense counsel can't ask CPS questions about her experience or ask general questions about uh, policies and procedures. Again, if that were the case, we wouldn't be here. Instead, Plowman, uh, defense counsel, instead of asking Plowman something like, what are the possible outcomes of, of a CPS investigation? What does CPS base its substantiate or ultimate decision on? 
The pro he, he doesn't ask that. Instead, he asks, are there situations where CPS ultimately finds that allegations are unfounded? And, and she responds, yes, there's been times where we've unsubstantiated a case. He goes further and asks Plowman to, to elaborate. Well, what is that based on? When you, when you unsubstantiate a case, what, is, what are you looking at? And she describes several things that CPS considers, including interviews with uh, indiv individuals in the investigation, presumably the child, CME, uh, child medical evaluation findings, determinations, and discussions with medical providers. All things that Plowman had just described earlier on, on direct that CPS considered in Lucinda's case. In essence, while it's a general question about other cases, not necessarily did you unsubstantiate in this case, it was a specifically targeted question to highlight the fact that sometimes CPS determines that abuse didn't occur, despite presumably what a child says. While the state recognizes counsel's questions aren't evidence to be considered by the jury, it's the series of questions that he asks immediately prior to asking this question about unfounded allegations. And this provides important context for the court, because when you consider that Plowman's testimony that CPS had found, has found uh, allegations to be unfounded in cases, right after he's just pointed out all these potential inconsistencies, it's possible that this created an unfavorable, uh, a, a favorable inference in the minds of the jury that allegations against defendant were unfounded li likewise, as CPS has found in other cases. And I want to highlight, it's that series of questions right before this testimony that's significant. This is particularly likely in, uh, given the fact that this was a witness for the defense and not the state. Without knowing the law and the fact that CPS couldn't otherwise testify that it had substantiated abuse, the jury might have already been thinking that it was somewhat unusual that a CPS investigator would be testifying for the defense and not the state, unless perhaps, as defense counsel suggested by his questions, the child's statements were so inconsistent that after observing the forensic interview, talking to the medical providers, CPS ultimately unsubstantiated uh, as to Lucinda as it had done in many other cases. Equally uh, problematic, Your Honors, is the timing of the testimony. This was at the end of Plowman's testimony, literally the last thing that the jury heard her say before counsel stops asking questions. It's not hard to imagine that the jury is left sitting there going, okay, well, what happened here? Did CPS substantiate or not? But counsel just leaves them hanging with this lingering question. And, and as you're honored, why, why would that be relevant if not because counsel wanted to leave them with the impression that CPS had not substantiated in this case? And for that reason, at this point, the proverbial door is left hanging open for the state to come back, dispel that, potentially, uh, that potential inference that the defendant, uh, that CPS had not substantiated abuse in this case. You're saying the ultimate question, did you substantiate abuse or not? Instead of doing that, which obviously yeah. falls, would, you know, sure. allow, are there other ways to rehabilitate that witness so the jury's not left hanging, as you said? 
Not really, Your Honor. If the question that's left, if the, if the question that the jurors are left with that, at that point is, did CPS substantiate in this case, which seems quite likely, giving, as I mentioned, all those other factors, it only makes sense for the state to, to come back and, and answer that specific question. And I believe I cited a case uh, in my memorandum of additional authority, which was filed yesterday, which I apologize for the timing of that. But in that case, uh, different context, the court notes that it, the question, the questionable testimony um, that, I'm sorry, the defendant opened the door with a line of questions that left, likely left the jury with an open-ended lingering question in its mind, well, what happened um, in that case? How bad was it? Sufficient for the, the state to then come back and, and respond to that specific question. Um, I believe the other case cited in that as well, State v. Siriani, in the, in the memorandum I'm discussing, um, equally a similar situation happened. There was a series of questions asked by defense counsel. State indicated that, or argued that the defendant had opened the door, and the state, uh, as the court noted that, I'm sorry, not that, thinking of a different case, State v. Albert, where the, um, the defendant testified about the results of a polygraph test which would otherwise be inadmissible in court. Um, he leaves, the, the court says he leaves the jurors with the inference that he offered to take a test and the state wouldn't let him. The state then was able to come back on cross and not just answer that specific question, well, did you offer to take a test? It was permissible for the state to go even further and ask, and didn't you fail that test? So again, closing the door, answering that specific question, um, not sure that there's any other way to, to get at that and rehabilitate this witness other than ask the question directly, Your Honor. One other uh, important note here is the fact that the state has the burden of proof in a criminal trial. Had it to the point, or the question Your Honor just asked, had the state not responded by answering this question, did CPS uh, substantiate abuse, the jury might have been left with the impression that the state, bearing the burden of proof, did not offer the results of the CPS investigation or did not call CPS because the evidence was uh, unfavorable to the state, which was not the case. And it is this, this inference, this lingering question in, in the mix of a series of questions, the timing, the fact this was a defendant witness, defendant witness all of which provides the context for this court to, to determine that the state, uh, sorry, the defendant had opened the door and therefore the state's cross-examination question was not uh, improper. I do wanna just finally note the burden here is on the defendant to prove that there's no plain error and has cited very little case law to support or dispute that, that he in fact opened the door. Unless there are any other questions, um, finished with, with what I needed to say. If you have anything else, you have 12 minutes, so if you do have anything else to say about the SPM order, feel free to, if you think there's any lingering concerns. Sure, actually, before I get to that, since I do have time, just, it wasn't addressed by a counsel, but the ineffective assistance of counsel, the alternate argument to issue two, um, that counsel provided ineffective assistance of counsel by not objecting to the testimony the defendant has referenced the state v. Casey case, and the state does recognize that that holding, um, but would like to would, would point out that the distinction here is that the state in that case did not argue that the defendant had opened the door, which I think is an important distinction. Um, in that way, 
this, this case is cited by the, the state, State v. Boyd and State v. Black are more on point. Uh, in, in Boyd, the defendant had made the same exact argument and alternate argument that the defendant made in this case. Essentially, first, that there, the testimony was improper, or I'm sorry, that there was otherwise an admissible testimony presented, and if, and therefore plain error, and if not, that counsel had provided ineffective assistance by not objecting. This court held that it was not plain error for the state to introduce that otherwise inadmissible testimony, there it was a videotaped uh, interrogation statement, because the defendant had opened the door, and therefore, um, not only was it not plain error, but he couldn't show that but for his attorney not objecting, that there would have been a different outcome at trial, and therefore couldn't also establish uh, that there was an ineffective assistance of counsel, which is precisely the case here, your honors. Um, if, if the state, if the court agrees there was no plain error because defendant opened the door to Plowman's testimony, then under Boyd, this court should likewise determine that the defendant did not receive an effective assistance of counsel, but for his attorney not objecting, the trial court would have likely overruled that objection. And on appeal, defendant's not challenging as IAC those actions and questions that opened the door. Say that again. The defendant is not challenging on appeal as I, as an effective assistance of counsel that trial counsel opened the door, it's only the not objecting, correct? It, Sorry, could you clarify There's no that? challenge that um, the defendant's not arguing on appeal that it was IAC for defense counsel to ask these questions that opened the door to this rebuttal evidence, correct? I think Just arguing that once the state introduce this evidence that trial counsel should have objected at that point. Yeah, that, that's correct, Your Honor. Sorry, that was a long way to get there, but yes. Um, also want to just reference the State v. Black case, which is uh, cited in the state's brief as well. There again, the court held because the defendant could not prove plain error, he likewise couldn't prove ineffective assistance of counsel. Going to the, the third issue, satellite-based monitoring. As an initial matter, the state, as your honors are aware, the state would point out the defendant did not properly file a written notice of appeal, which is required when appealing a satellite-based monitoring order, therefore has lost his right to review of this issue. Defendant has filed a petition for writ of certiorari in accordance with Rule 21. As the state indicated in its response to that petition, not only did defendant fail to file the written notice, he also failed to properly preserve these issues for appeal. Um, by not objecting to either the findings of the order or the order itself at trial, and therefore is requesting that the petition be denied. In the event this court is inclined to grant defendant's petition, the state contends there are several issues, um, three sub-issues, if you will. Quickly, the, the state does concede the first issue that the, the court uh, improperly found that the defendant's convictions constitute aggravated offenses. Likewise, the state doesn't dispute that if the, the information contained in the record is correct, the static 99R risk assessment was likely in, incorrectly scored as well. The state does contend the third sub-issue, uh, however, and, and argues that even if there were errors in the first two pieces, any error was harmless when defendant concedes he was otherwise eligible for satellite-based monitoring because of the nature of his offense of his convictions and the other fi findings found by the court excuse me, the court in that order, um, and because the trial court properly considered all of the evidence that was available to it when making its determination. 
Um, as indicated in the state's brief, the, state, the trial court did not make any written additional findings of fact. Rather, the judge stated in open court that he was basing his decision not only on the static 99R, but also on the testimony he had during trial, but doesn't go into, of course, what specific testimony he's referring to. Should the court hold that that's insufficient under the law, the state uh, contends that the property re proper remedy is to remand this case for further evidentiary proceedings based on the evidence that was presented. Contrary to defendant's assertions, the state presented ample evidence at trial, the whole trial, in fact, um, to support its satellite-based monitoring order, which is properly considered under the case law, um, especially in situations where a defendant's been convicted of a crime that involves the physical, mental, or sexual abuse of a minor, the court is permitted to consider the evidence with respect to the defendant's, the factual nature of the defendant's convictions. And in this case, the trial specifically elicited significant uh, evidence to, su to support or to address the, the factual nature in particular. There were multiple victim children of both sexes. Both children were very young at the time the abuse occurred. The defendant was like a grandfather to both children, even if not biologically, and he took advantage of that position of trust. And finally, the penetra penetra penetrative abuse of Tommy was repeated over several years. Notably, uh, and this, uh, uh, for this reason, this case should be remanded. Again, if the court finds that there weren't adequate written findings of fact, this case should be remanded uh, to be in line with cases like State v. Green, State v. Edwards, and State v. Merricks, all of which um, this court, where the court held that it was proper for the trial court to consider testimony in particular with respect to the age of the children when making its satellite-based monitoring order. Uh, the cases cited by the defense, I would just point out significantly in all of those cases, and of course they're arguing that the, the case should be re uh, reversed, not remanded. In all of those cases, the defendant had pled guilty or no contest, and therefore there was no trial and no, no opportunity for the state to present this evidence, although there were uh, post-sentencing satellite-based monitoring hearings uh, or uh, probation hearings in some of these cases. But the state recognizes or, or points out in those cases the state did not present any additional testimony or evidence of um, either the defendant's convictions or any other evidence to support a higher level of risk. Um, in light of the fact that the defendant's convictions properly qualified the defendant for satellite-based monitoring, as well as the fact that ample evidence was presented at trial, the state contends that the satellite-based monitoring order was proper or alternatively respectfully ask that this court remand this case for further evidentiary proceedings. Okay, thank you, Your Honors. Um, I will address the issues in sort of reverse order, starting with SPM. Um, I would just point this court um, to the fact that um, in the case the, site, the state cites in its in memorandum of additional authority, State versus Green, the language there is that yes, of course, the factual basis of the crime can be can be used, and and Mr. Johnson doesn't dispute that. However, that evidence must be um, admissible evidence relevant to the risk posed by defendant. And I don't think any of the factors that the state has cited today, and certainly not the ones cited in the brief, um, are actually relevant to 
Mr. Johnson's risk of reoffending. Um, yes, they are relevant to sentencing, potentially relevant to guilt, um, but not to his risk of, of sexually reoffending. Um, and if there are no questions on that, I'll go back to um, the vouching argument. Um, I think we we don't really disagree on the law here. This is a question of fact. Um, and in order for defense counsel to have opened the door, I think defense counsel's questions and the witness's answers. I think we can't look at defense counsel's questions in isolation. We have to look at the witness's answers too. The jury had to have been left with a, a misleading impression that the state was required to address. And in, in cases that the state cites, um, for example, the, the defense opened the door when the defendant said, yes, I offered to take a polygraph test. And then that opens the door to a cross-examination about, well, what was the result of the polygraph test? Those two things, those pieces of testimony are really closely linked in a way that they are not here. And that the Supreme Court has said in State versus Jones, they must be very related. These are big general concepts, and as, as Judge Gore pointed out, there were, there were plenty of other ways for the state to, to rebut this testimony that came out um, about the potential inconsistencies in Lucinda's statements. Um, for example, they could have, on cross, just asked the witness, didn't you say that kids testify this way often or offer more details here than they do another time? Does that mean they're inconsistent? That witness would have said no. Um, that is clear from the transcript, and I think if you're going to allow that to mean that the door is open to the ultimate question, to the, um, the ultimate question that belongs to the jury, um, that would really turn vouching case law, a long line of precedent, on its head. Um, and of course, Lucinda's credibility is at issue in this case. Um, it's her word against Mr. Johnson's. But I don't think that the questions the defense counsel asked, particularly in light of the witnesses' responses, opened the door to the substantiation testimony any more than when Mr. Johnson pled not guilty at the outset of trial. This was a trial. The, state's, the credibility of the state's case, the credibility of Lucinda's testimony was always at issue. And just quickly to touch on a question Judge Murphy asked, um, this all, uh, Lucinda's credibility and her testimony and her statements all mattered and went to the, the alleged crimes against Tommy as well. She discussed whether he was in the room. Sometimes she says he was in the room. Sometimes she says he wasn't there. There was testimony that, in fact, he was actually there only one day during the week that Lucinda was there um, from other parties. So all of that was very closely intertwined and affected all the, all the charges in this case. Um, and if I could just go back to the, the jury issue, Again, we don't really disagree on the law here, um, but I do think that when counsel says things of, like, um, I agree this was a mistake, I think um, my calculus would have been different, it was an honest mistake, she said this unbeknownst to herself, of course opposing counsel is right that he didn't say, I disavow each and every four cause basis for this juror, but I, I think this is a trial practice, right? People are in the moment, this is what they're saying, these are the words that were used, and if we look at this record in context as a whole, he was trying to exercise a peremptory challenge um, and had the right to do so here. Um, relief in this case on either, on either the first or second issue or on the third issue doesn't really break any ground. I think this court, the binding precedent is, is clear here. 
Um, and when these statements are read in context, I think that the error becomes apparent. Um, nothing in our appellate courts requires magic words, and um, counsel, was, counsel was trying to exercise a peremptory challenge here, however inartfully it was done. Um, for these reasons and, and those in the brief, I would respectfully ask that this court grant Mr. Johnson a new trial. be at ease for a few minutes while council has a chance to change out and I hope everybody has a great day.